This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Is there something out there that's stopping you from being the person that you want to be? Something maybe interfering with your happiness or stopping you from achieving your goals or wants? Hey, anything can come along and become a problem to you. Big or small, we are all different. Any of the relationships we have all take work and most of us will drop anything to go and help someone that we care deeply about. Plus we'll go out of our way to try and treat other people well. But how often do we stop and give ourselves the same treatment? For after all, the most important relationship you can have in your life is your relationship with yourself. If any of this sounds familiar to you, then maybe better help is a solution that can help you. Because help is something that we all need at some point in our lives and it's no stigma to reach out. BetterHelp is an online therapy offering you video, phone or even live chat sessions with your appointed therapist. So if you don't want to, you don't even have to see anyone on camera. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, it's available worldwide and you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist that's best suited to help you with your needs in less than 48 hours. As I've said before, we all need to reach out for help sometimes and personally, in my own times of need, I've found that talking to a professional in the past has helped me. So, if you think you need to, why not give BetterHelp a try and see just why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash tce that's b-e-t-t-e-r-h-e-l-p dot com slash tce Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. The premier North Wales one person and his cat true crime podcast where each time around I've hopefully sought out for your listening pleasures, if that is of course the right word to use because I'm never sure there, a tale or tales of true crime sourced from all corners of the UK and Ireland that you may not be too familiar with, that you might think, what? That you may not even believe? or have perhaps long forgotten about. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The almost toothless, hairy, negative Pixie is about here with me as well. And I say this always so that I don't have to delete and re-record any parts if he pops up with his little bell during an episode, which he does quite often and I'm sure that you may have heard from time to time. And most importantly, the key ingredient to make the show happen you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts, are joining us today. 
It's as fabulous as it always is having you here, and I do hope that as you've joined us, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So I'll begin here with big thanks for all the feedback I've received for the previous two-part episode of The Enthusiast, the April that changed Abigail. I do gather it's been very well received, that one has, and it was always a tale I wanted to bring, because much like Andreas's story amongst others that we've heard here on the past, it's a refreshing change sometimes to bring a tale of horror that does have some sort of a chink of light in it and can be a bit inspirational. And you have to agree with me too, surely. Abigail and the whole Witchell and Hollins families, really, I found this spirit remarkable, truly inspirational, and it was a tale I was proud to have covered. And while I do tend to keep picking these tales that I can't just cover in one episode, I do try and balance them out a bit so the series flows quite nicely. So before the next two-parter I've researched and near-written, I must add, we shall have a few standalone tales beginning with the one that I'm bringing this time around. Before those tales though, Patreon week has come around again quickly, so I shall be squaring that one away next, and back here on the regular enthusiast the following week. On the subject of Patreon, big thanks out to all of the returning and new supporters of the show, with shoutouts to new supporters Ishan Hussein, Sarah Bryan, Danny Lilly, Vanessa Prowse, Laura Boyle-Smith and Cheryl Was Ravenscroft, plus Mia and the fabulous Picture the Scene podcast, who've edited their pledges and opted to annually support the show. It's amazingly kind and welcomed of you to do so all. Thank you so much for your kind support. It means the absolute world, it really does. Now, should you wish to be joining this kind lot on Patreon, then it's dead easy to do so. There's a link in the episode show notes that will take you to it quicker than Will Smith up on a stage to lay the smack down on Chris Rock. I wonder if he's off back to Bel Air for safety yet. And for less each month than the management of P&O Ferries would get in a Christmas collection from their ex-staff, and they are absolute shy-talks the management there, aren't they, by the way? Callous isn't the word. But you can be tuning in to unreleased bonus episodes of The Enthusiasts, such as The Mystery of Leatham Street, Death of a Brighton Schoolboy, or Wicked Beyond Belief, to name just a couple of the full series worth of extra full-length tales that are out there. And a new one comes around every couple of weeks as well. Plus it's sometimes where I get a chance to bring a tale that's a bit away from the norm there too. And which I always love to do. But we're on very much familiar territory with the tale that I've brought you this time around. For this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we're off to the town of Warrington, the ceremonial county of Cheshire's largest town, and back to the late 1990s. To me, surely the best decade for music that there has ever been. Couple of stats about Warrington then. Solemnly, on the 20th of March 1993, the town was the scene of two devastating bombings by the IRA that resulted in the deaths of two children, Tim Parry and Jonathan Ball, which I'm sure, if you're in the UK, you'll undoubtedly remember. Warrington is also where the Museum of Policing in Cheshire is located. It was the town where the UK's first IKEA store opened in October 1987, and where there are today probably still people lost in there from that opening day. And famous residents to hail from Warrington include DJ and TV presenter Chris Evans, the late actor Pete Postlethwaite, Frank and Furter himself, actor Tim Curry, 
the world's shittest chooser of husbands, who could surely tag-team in that with Katie Price, Kerry Katona, and most legendary, King Monkey himself, the lead singer of the Stone Roses, Ian Brown. Centenary Theatre Company is today an award-winning amateur theatre group based in Warrington, which even at one time boasted the Spice Girl Mel C as a member. Formed in 1901, originally as a ladies' choral society, it soon evolved into the Crossfields Operatic and Dramatic Society, performing for more than 70 years at the town's Crossfields Theatre, before moving its musical and dramatic productions to the town's Parr Hall in 1991, upon Crossfields Theatre closing. Now, Parr Hall is a fabulous live venue where I've been more than a few times to see all sorts of bands. I remember actually falling and hurting my knee really badly during a Cortina's gig there many years ago. And it's Parr Hall where, in the late 1990s, real-life events were set in motion, the genesis stemming from the society itself that could have rivaled any of the productions they'd put on over the years in its fantasticness. That indeed, you seemingly couldn't write even if you tried. And that ended in something that certainly wasn't staged, a real-life brutal murder. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Understudy. So as I said, even though by the late 1990s, the Centenary Operatic and Dramatic Society, as it had by that time become known, had moved premises, its function hadn't changed whatsoever. Aside from offering theatre lovers a taste of the stage in the committed and enthusiastic amateur productions it put on, the theatre group was also popular for its thriving social scene. Speaking from experience, because I've trodden a board or two myself in my time, it's a pastime, this is, that creates many strong friendships, frequently leads on to a relaxing drink after busy rehearsals, and allows for players to have many trips away and excursions to see various other productions or events. The Crossfields Operatic and Dramatic Society was no exception, and it was at one such trip away that the events that make up our tale began. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit there, for let's meet some more of the dramatis persona from our tale first. Two of the leading lights in the society at this time, and inevitably the two who got the more prominent, usually leading roles in any productions, were 33-year-old married couple Catherine and Chris Lineker, who had every reason to love it, because after all, it was what had brought them together. It was during a shopping trip to Warrington from her home in Skelmersdale in 1989 that deputy head teacher Catherine had spotted a fly poster for an upcoming production of My Fair Lady that was being held by the society. And with her love of performing arts, she was a capable and accomplished musician herself. Combined with her fun-loving and humorous personality, it was something that Catherine fancied getting involved with very much. Going along to the show, she was soon bitten by the acting bug and quickly joined the society herself. By that October, she had one of the leading roles in the society production of Gigi, and two years later, also through the society, Catherine was well into a relationship with a man who was to go on to become her husband, Chris Lineker. 
It just seemed that life went from strength to strength for Catherine, for someone who, although she was the elder twin, born 20 minutes ahead of her sister Fiona in November 1964, was initially the quieter one, Catherine had soon come out of her shell and developed a lively and contagious sense of humour. A gifted student, Catherine was ultimately to gain 11 O-levels and 3 A-level grades through schooling before realising her lifelong ambition and attending Edgehill Teacher Training College. At the age of 22, after graduating from here, Catherine began teaching in 1987, and by seven years later had worked her way up for an appointment as head of infants at St. James Primary School in the Merseyside village of Haydock, later becoming its acting deputy head teacher. In her spare time, she wrote workbooks for primary school children and resource material for nursery school teachers, the devotion to and love of children and teaching spurring her on to do so and making her a success at it. By 1997, Catherine had become a published author and was that year working on two new books for youngsters, both being listed on the Waterstones and W.H. Smith books in print lists. Aside from her passion for her job, music and performance was another big part of Catherine's life. She'd been taught at a young age to play the piano by her mother herself a retired headteacher, and went on to learn the recorder, clarinet and guitar, as well as enthusiastically taking part in several school plays, although never then in principal roles. So, perhaps wanting to rectify this, Catherine had challenged herself to get more involved in something that she loved doing, and thus had joined the society in 1989, where her infectious personality and enthusiasm soon won her many friends there. She'd also soon developed a relationship with another one of the lead actors, computer consultant Chris Lineker. And within three years, by 1992, the couple had married and had moved into a spacious four-bedroom house at number 45 Tannery Lane in the Penketh area of Warrington. So it's a pretty good-sounding life by all accounts. Catherine was happy and successful at work, attractive and talented, and very well-liked. Close friends of the couple and fellow players at the society were 26-year-old sales administrator Nick Cupid and his 24-year-old former hairdresser wife Jenny, who themselves had both held a keen interest in performing arts from their teenage years. Bitten by the theatre bug from an early age, at 15 Nick had even formed his own one-way theatre group for children aged 11+, plus, who also staged productions at Warrington's Par Hall so coming to know well the members of the operatic and dramatic society. It was a natural stepping stone for him to join the society later, bringing his then-wife Jennifer to the group with him. But whereas sales administrator Nick had a natural talent as a singer and actor, one who'd worked as an extra in several television soaps and had performed on the club circuit as a cabaret act, the same couldn't be said for his wife Jenny. Though she joined the one-way theatre group as a dancer when she was about 15 years of age, she had, even back then, a somewhat overinflated opinion of her own talent. Jenny Lithgow, as she was known then, saw herself as the star of the show, the girl destined to move out of the chorus line and into the limelight. She was convinced everyone was envious of her blonde hair, her elfin looks and her attractive slim figure and had soon set her sights on group leader Nick, a former fellow youth performer recalled of her later. 
Jennifer was weird, a real spitfire. I never liked her. I don't think Nick liked her any more than any of the others in the group, but she pushed herself at him. She went after him from the start and then wouldn't let go. If any other girl showed the slightest interest in Nick, she would start fighting and pulling her hair. She was insanely jealous. I don't know what he saw in her. He could have had his pick of lots of girls. It just doesn't make sense. He could have gone on to do the big musicals, but he didn't make it because he married her. She was a little madam. She would do anything to draw attention to herself. She had psychiatric problems even before she had her first baby, and most definitely afterwards. Don't sit on the fence there, right? Jennifer had soon enough managed to get her man, and was only 17 when she fell pregnant by Nick with her first child, going on to have a daughter, Laura. The couple then married in September 1993 at St Andrew's Church in the Warrington district of Orford, Jenny being given away by her mother Joan following her parents' divorce, and the Cupid family moved to a council property in the town's Borrowdale Avenue. But there were several who knew them who had doubts about the Cupid's marriage from the start, the opinion being that Jenny was then, and would always be, more interested in getting attention for herself than family life. One former friend recalled, With Jenny, everything was just perfect, or it wasn't. If she didn't get what she wanted, when she wanted it, then you'd know about it. Even when she married Nick, it was as though she was in love with the wedding and all of the show, rather than with Nick. She looked beautiful on the day, but everybody had to match. Her flowers matched the bridesmaids' dresses. Nick's waistcoat matched both her and her daughter, Laura Rose, who had to have her own silk wedding outfit. It was one of those days where everything looked right and everything was done just right, but you wondered where they went from there. It was following the newlyweds moving into their new home that they soon became closely involved with the Centenary Operatic and Dramatic Society and eventually became close friends with Kathy and Chris Lineker, whose family had been associated with the society for many years. Pretty soon, the Linekers and the Cupids had become a regular foursome for nights out, often around to dinner at each other's houses, and even taking the odd weekend trip away down to London together. But whilst Nick, Catherine and Chris Lineker were bigger, more talented players, and during the following years, all three enjoyed playing leading roles in various big productions the society put on, such as Oklahoma, Annie, The King and I, or The Sound of Music. Jenny Cupid was always the no-hoper, always the understudy. While she maintained the belief that she had star potential, a fellow society member said of her, She was always in the chorus, she didn't have any real talent, and she was so insignificant. If you blinked in a show, you wouldn't have seen her. Nevertheless, Jenny remained a popular member of the group, winning several friends with her outgoing personality. But there was an arguably other, deeper reason for her popularity, for her attractive figure and good looks had soon won her several male admirers, and she did nothing to play down the attention she got. In fact, she loved it. The fellow player recalled, Jenny was a terrible flirt which all the blokes loved and some of the women were suspicious of, but even though she could be all sweetness and light the one minute, she could suddenly turn and had a ferocious temper on her. You never knew when she was about to explode, but it usually came when she'd not got the part she wanted. 
So if Jenny Cupid wanted something, then she wouldn't stop until she had it. And if she couldn't have it, as was to be shown later, then the consequences could sometimes be severe, sometimes fatal. Now, at first, Catherine suspected nothing untoward going on here, but after a while, she became aware of the lingering looks that she would catch Jenny making at Chris whenever the foursome were out together, or were at the society, and by January 1997, having seen enough and brooded upon it, she decided to warn her husband that he had an admirer. She knew that Jennifer Cupid found him attractive, but when she allayed her fears about Cupid to Chris Lineker, concerned that she may become a threat to their marriage, he merely laughed off Catherine's claims and worries, telling Catherine that there was nothing to fear because even if she did, there was no attraction reciprocated on his part. He and Jenny were simply good friends, he insisted. Satisfied with her husband's proclamation of innocence, Catherine saw no reason to confront Cupid about it. Although she was still concerned enough that she privately wished for her and Chris to distance themselves from the Cupids, for she'd confided more than once to her mother that Cupid was over-friendly with her as well, turning up at the Lineker's house often and constantly attempting to encroach onto their family time of evenings and weekends. Chris was adamant there was nothing going on between them, and at his insistence, on Sunday the 12th of April 1998, the Cupids were amongst those occupying the front pew for the Lineker's new baby Holly's christening. Four days later, on Thursday the 16th of April, Cupid contacted her mother-in-law, Barbara Cupid, to ask her if the following day she would be able to mind both of her children for a few hours saying that she had errands to run and a friend to go and visit, this being something Barbara was only too happy to agree to, and she arranged to head around to the Cupid's home the following morning. When the following morning came, and Barbara had arrived around at Borrowdale Avenue to sit for the children, Jenny thanked her, and then headed off to the local Asda store to do some shopping. Arriving here, she collected the family's usual groceries and necessities, but this time also lingered in the homeware aisle of the supermarket, where, after some perusal, she selected another item, which went into the basket along with her other shopping. Whilst the other groceries were neatly packed into bags, ready to be transported home, the other items she'd selected went straight into Cupid's handbag just as soon as she got into her car. Dropping her shopping off back at home, Jenny then headed back out for a visit, off to see her friend Kathy, who was at the time still at the couple's home in Penketh on her maternity leave, and who was feeling somewhat down, she told Barbara, promising her that she would not be back too late. Some three hours later, however, with still no sign of Jenny returning, the telephone rang in the Cupid's front room, and Barbara, ever helpful and willing to take any messages should her son or daughter-in-law need them, answered the call, only to speak to a very animated, very distressed Jenny Cupid. It was a telephone call that shocked Barbara to the core, for she was to hear a near-hysterical Jenny saying, I'm in Kathy's, she's dead. How would you feel, and what would you do in such a situation? Immediately, Barbara and her husband Roy made the five-mile or so journey around to the Lineker's home, where upon their arrival, they found a scene of pure horror. 
covered in blood and bleeding from a deep gash just below her right thumb, Jenny stood cradling the crying four-month-old baby Holly, simply repeating over and over, almost to herself, Oh God! Oh God! Signs of a struggle were apparent throughout the hall, and blood smeared the walls, the door, and the floor of the hallway. Catherine Lineker, meanwhile, lay on the floor of the living room, lifeless and covered with blood. When police arrived at the scene only a few minutes later, contacted by Jenny's shocked mother-in-law, Jenny eventually told them, through periods of her own breaking down and sobbing, that she and her friend had been attacked by an intruder, a skinhead, she described him, a youth in a brown jacket who had forced his way into the house and pushing Jenny and baby Holly into the study, had then launched a murderous onslaught against Catherine, butchering her in a savage attack. And a savage attack is an understatement. The Home Office pathologist who was to later examine Catherine, Dr Alan Williams, determined that Catherine had been savagely battered senseless by a heavy blunt object with sharp edges that had struck her at least eight separate blows to and around the head, but had ultimately been killed by at least three, but possibly as many as eight, stab wounds to her stomach, one of which had penetrated her liver, with another almost ending up in her heart. Dr Williams was also to tell a court later that in his opinion, these had been inflicted with two different knives, and Catherine Lineker had been dead for almost two hours, before the emergency services had arrived. So, the plot thickens. Why had Jenny not raised the alarm immediately? It was one of several other things that didn't add up or tally with Cupid's account. Why would an intruder attack just one woman there so brutally and fatally, and yet leave another witness alive, relatively unharmed? Why had nothing been taken from the scene? Why was no one seen fleeing, as house-to-house -house inquiries were to almost immediately establish? And why had Cupid initially rung her mother and father-in-law instead of an ambulance or police, or had not gone to the Lineker's immediate neighbours to get help? In fact, there was something almost theatrical about Cupid's whole performance, from the way she theatrically rocked backwards and forwards on a chair in distress as she told police officers called to the scene the tale that she'd given her mother and father-in-law, to the collapse she made as she was being escorted to the ambulance called to the scene for treatment for the cut to her hand, a collapse which one of the initial responding paramedics, Kenneth Fellows, was later to describe as follows. The young woman dropped to the floor, but it was as if she was acting. It was done to prevent herself from hurting herself as she fell. The girl's eyes were closed, but she was deliberately holding them shut, which told me she was conscious. I said to her, come on, get back on your feet, and she responded immediately. She just got up and walked to the ambulance. Aside from the cut near to the base of her right thumb, which was deep enough to require seven stitches, it was soon established that Jenny Cupid was otherwise unharmed from the attack, for although she had heavily blood-stained clothing and blood on her forehead, her left cheek, her right ear, forearm and the front of her neck, no other wounds to her that this blood could have come from were found. 
So, with something that smelt fishier than the contents of Baldrick's apple crumble, been watching a lot of Blackadder late of late, as soon as she could be medically released from hospital, Jenny Cupid was cautioned, arrested, and taken to Warrington Police Station for questioning. Once here, although she initially stuck to a story about the shaven-headed intruder, Cupid was to soon tell police a completely different one, for there had been no skinhead forcing his way into the house, no intruder of any kind. Oh no, Cupid now claimed to police that Catherine had attacked her with a knife, and in the course of defending herself, during their struggle, Catherine had been stabbed. I bet you couldn't see that coming, could you? It was a story that a packed courtroom at Chester Crown Court was to hear played over a week-long trial some nine months later, when on the 26th of January 1999, then 25-year-old Jennifer Cupid appeared there charged with the murder of Catherine Lineker, to which she offered a plea of not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, a plea that was rejected by the Crown. Before presiding Mr Justice Sachs, Mr Alex Carlyle QC for the Crown told the court that that Friday in April 1998, Jennifer Cupid had attacked Catherine in her own home, first with a heavy bottle and then stabbing her with two knives, the second necessary because the first knife had broken after the first blow, such was the ferocity she had stabbed her with. And the reason why, can you guess? Because, the court heard, almost 16 months before this act, Jennifer and Catherine's husband Chris Lineker had begun a clandestine sexual relationship, with Mr Carlyle then outlining the whole sordid affair to a hushed courtroom. It was pretty soon after one such trip away that the Cupids and Linekers had taken down to London to see a show in December 1996, that the slim and attractive 24-year-old Jennifer had the first chance that she could get to be alone with Chris, told him that she found him incredibly attractive. Flattered, he told her so, and that he felt the same, and before long, he was to prove a willing partner to her, for by January 1997, the two had already slept together and had begun a torrid affair. And torrid is a bit of an understatement. Jenny and Chris met at least once a week for sex, often more, and not only did the encounters happen in each of their homes whilst their respective spouses were out, but Cupid also on occasion entertained her lover in her parents' house, as well as enjoying open-air sex sessions with Chris Lineker at places such as Delamere Forest near Warrington, in woods next to the Alton Towers theme park in Staffordshire, and once in a multi-storey car park in Blackpool. On one occasion, whilst they were enjoying an illicit evening away together at the Novotel in Worsley, Greater Manchester, they even first filmed themselves having sex, instigated by Chris Lineker, who it was claimed later, I quote, had a taste for porn. And Cupid was game on for it also. I'm not saying too much that they were like the bloody Wests or anything, but they were both proper goers, shall we say. Their favourite time of the day was 10 to 2, you know what I mean? Ever seeking to up the thrill of their illicit encounters, when Cupid told her lover of her three-in-a-bed fantasies, Lineker was only too happy to oblige her and involved his brother-in-law, 
insurance salesman, professional pianist and fellow member of the society, Neil Alcock, who was married to his sister Sally. He was on it like the McCann's on a plane, and it was a session that took place in the Lineker's luxury detached home whilst Catherine was away at school, and once again, it was a session that was videotaped. Another threesome even involved Jenny's husband Nick Cupid, which took place in the front room of the Cupid's Borrowdale Avenue home, while the Cupid's two children, Laura, then aged seven, and Ben, aged just two, were asleep upstairs. Chris Lineker had also planned to have sex with Cupid and one of her female friends, but this was abandoned because the day it had been arranged for, his wife had given birth to their second child, Holly. For yes, all throughout the torrid affair he was conducting, Chris Lineker had kept playing nothing except the dutiful husband and doting father, and had even fathered another child with his wife. It was a role he kept up playing until even only the night before his wife was killed, when late that evening, Chris Lineker and Cupid met in the car park of the Cherry Tree Pub in the nearby village of Colchuth, where they once again had sex, this time in the back of his car. It was to prove to be the last time they were intimate with one another. Mr Carlyle detailed all of this sordidness to the court, the romps in each other's houses or at Cupid's parents' house, the woods and car parks where they'd meet up for sex, and how, at Chris Lineker's urging, their sexual encounters soon began to take on a new twist, as we've just heard. He told the court, somewhat scathing towards all involved. At Chris Lineker's suggestion, their sexual intercourse was sometimes videotaped. On two occasions, they also had sexual intercourse with a second man involved. Firstly, Mr Lineker's brother-in-law, Neil Alcock, one of these occasions was videoed. On another occasion, the threesome involved Chris Lineker, Jennifer Cupid, and her husband Nick. The weaknesses of human nature include jealousy, envy, sexual greed, lust, and stubbornness. There is one character in this case who rose above those flawed qualities, and that was Catherine Lineker. Catherine Lineker was the only innocent party in this sordid saga. She was lively, attractive, and she managed to combine a full career with a successful home life. She may never have known for sure, or may have only known minutes before she died, that her husband and Jennifer Cupid were having an affair. When it came to the turn of Chris Lineker to give evidence, he described to the court how the affair had begun in December 1996 after returning from a London trip which he, Catherine, the Cupids and other friends had made. Cupid, he claimed, had called him on his mobile phone whilst he was attending a training course held at Anfield, the home ground of Liverpool FC, and engaged him in a conversation during which she had asked him outright if he thought she should leave the operatic society because she was becoming too interested in him and flattered, to which he'd replied there was no reason for her to make such a drastic move. After all, he could say the same to her. More telephone calls and messages between the two had followed this, and the following month, when he'd called at her home, their affair had started. Lineker described the moment. We were talking in the kitchen. Jenny put a cup of coffee down, grabbed my hand, and took me upstairs. You did not protest too much, 
asked Mr. Carlyle. No, replied Lineker. He then added that he had made it clear to Cupid from the start, though, that leaving his wife and children was, I quote, never going to be an option, but had subsequently had sex with Cupid on a very regular basis, sometimes more than once a week, in a variety of locations, even getting away for nights whenever the pair got the chance to. Chris Lineker then described the three-in-the-bed sex sessions that he'd indulged in with Cupid and that the first of these sessions had taken place in the spare bedroom at the Lineker's home whilst Kathy was at school, which Chris Lineker told the court he'd set up a camera on a tripod to record the encounter. He continued, Jenny had made me aware that it was one of her fantasies to have someone else involved. We persuaded my brother-in-law Neil to join us. Jenny was all for the idea. Cupid had submitted to anything during the session, he had claimed, and according to Lineker, had even performed oral sex with both partners simultaneously during the session. Cameron Diaz, eat your heart out. Who decided who did what? asked Mr. Carlyle, to which Lineker replied, it was down to Jenny to dictate what went on. When he told the court that Cupid had almost as much enjoyed watching the videos of the sessions back, finding them exciting and a turn-on. She had wept in the dock and was heard to whisper, You liar. On the second of these occasions, in November 1997, Nick Cupid himself had been the third member in a session that had occurred downstairs in the lounge of the Cupid's own home while the two children slept soundly upstairs. Chris Lineker continued, Jenny said that Nick was interested in a threesome. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but it was arranged for Nick to arrive on the scene half an hour after me and Jenny. Jenny told me that was what Nick wanted. He wasn't aware we were having an affair. Nick arrived just after we'd had intercourse. We continued having intercourse, and Nick joined in. He had intercourse with Jenny, while she had oral sex with both myself and Nick. At the time of the trial, Police believe that copies of this or the other film may even have been circulating around members of the Warrington community. Lineker continued to tell the court that he'd later asked Jenny to arrange another threesome, this time with another woman. She told him she'd put the idea to a friend of hers who had agreed, and the session was arranged for December the 16th, 1997 although this session was ultimately hastily cancelled because his daughter Holly had been born on that very day. Indeed, Cupid had certainly made tentative discreet inquiries amongst the Operatic Society about this, as the court heard from a fellow member whom she'd asked to join her and Lineker in a threesome. However, when this had been sarcastically rebuffed, considered as a joke, it had never been mentioned again. By the time of Kathy's murder, however, Lineker claimed to the court that he wanted the affair with Cupid to end. Cupid had by then claimed to have suffered a miscarriage with a baby that could possibly have been his, and after that, he felt that she'd become somewhat unstable. In March 1998, she told him that she'd been accosted in an unlit Warrington street in which a man had approached her and grabbed her from behind, had torn her blouse, and had forced his hand down her trousers. Lineker claimed that so convincing was Cupid that he had at first believed this, but later on had become unsure and ultimately considered it was a fabrication. 
Yet at the same time, he admitted he'd made no real effort to stop the affair, despite his claims of wanting it to end. And for Cupid, the feelings only seemed to get stronger. She'd always been a prolific writer to Lineker, sending him love notes and gift cards, yet seemed to be aware in herself that he ultimately had no intention of leaving his wife and children. A letter that was written to him by her but never sent was found later during a search of Cupid's home, on which is very telling, reads, I love you so much, I would do anything for you. As for the question, do you love me more than Catherine? I now know the answer is no. That should really hurt, but as our love is so strong, I can cope with it. I would rather have it this way than nothing at all. I miss you so much when we're not together. When you told me you and Kathy rarely hug, I felt really strange. We hug and kiss more than a normal couple. It felt really strange to hear you say that. I think it's really important to tell each other how we feel. You're really secretive when it comes to your feelings, or is it that I'm really insecure? I love you, always and forever. Lineker, meanwhile, had sent her just the one letter through their affair, which was read out to the court, and which reads as follows. Well, I've finally done it. I've put pen to paper. I'm not sure what I should write, of course. I suppose you would like to see in black and white everything I tell you to your face, like I love you. I miss you when I'm not with you. But like I've told you, you have a special place in my heart, so when we're apart, it's not too bad. My feelings for you are more than just sexual, but I'm sure it must please you to think of me doing naughty things to myself while thinking of you. The thought of me being able to turn you on at all is amazing. I'm constantly finding new ways to make love to you in my mind. I cannot wait until the next time we get together so I can be close to you again. You ask me, why you? Well, in the beginning, the thought of someone as special as you finding me attractive was unbelievable not to mention incredibly erotic. Since then, I've grown to love you. Yes, I have everything, a perfect family, but that does not stop me loving you. We have something special, and I can talk to you about anything. We've shared almost every sexual experience together, and I can't imagine life without you. What troubles me is that I think you deserve more than I can give you. What troubles me more than this is that I can't let you go. I love you, always your friend. Telling the court that the letter had been written sincerely, Lineker added, I did love Jenny, but a lot of what I told her was what I thought she wanted to hear. He sounds a cad, this one, doesn't he? Well, to be honest, he sounds a bit of a twat, doesn't he? After Jennifer Cupid and Chris Lineker began their affair, Mr. Carlyle told the court that both Cupid and Kathy had continued on as friends at first, but as time passed, Kathy knew that there was something that she did not like, saying, She'd spotted the attention being paid to Cupid by her husband, and in January 1998, she warned her husband that Cupid had feelings for him, and that given the chance, she might move in on him. Kathy saw Cupid as a threat. She made it clear to him that she wanted as little to do with Jenny as possible, and her instinct was absolutely right. He denied that he was attracted in any way to Cupid, even though they were then heavily involved in an affair. Two days before Catherine's death, Q 
Cupid had told Chris Lineker that she intended to take her children and leave her husband, asking him to run away with her, first going to London, then on to Canada. Deathly serious, she told him she would pay their fares with a £3,500 compensation that she'd received previously for a road accident that she'd been involved in. Feeling his chickens now coming home to roost, Lineker had told the court that by that time he had desperately wanted the affair to end. He said, I didn't want Kathy to find out about the relationship and I was worried about Jenny doing something to herself. I still had the same feeling about Kathy. I was still in love with her, whereas I thought Jenny was very immature. She seemed to have emotional problems and an eating disorder. She was jealous of Kathy, the main reason being that she was my partner. Kathy was the one I went home to at night and spent weekends with. Jenny knew I would not run away with her because I told her repeatedly. Adrian Fulford QC, defending Cupid, refuted this, suggesting, You are trying to create the impression that you were anxious that your wife would find out and the defendant would harm herself. The true reason why the relationship continued was because you positively wanted it to, because of the sexual relations you were getting out of it. At the same time, you told her over and over again that you loved her. When she asked you seriously if you would leave your family, you didn't answer immediately. You paused before you said no, as if you were thinking about it seriously. No, replied Lineker. I paused because I was taken aback. Was it discussed from time to time, asked Mr. Fulford. Regularly, in letters she used to send to me. Did you ever lead her to believe that you would leave your wife? No, never. However, in response to further questions, Lineker agreed that he had had sexual intercourse with Cupid in a pub car park on the day before the murder, and on the day that Kathy had been killed, he had twice tried to phone Cupid while he was driving home from work. She hadn't answered him because she was, alleged the prosecution, otherwise engaged that day. The jury were then played a recording of the 999 call made by Cupid's mother-in-law, who along with her husband Roy, when they arrived at the Lineker's home that afternoon, could clearly be heard during the call asking Cupid what had happened, so they could give a clearer picture to the operator. Cupid could be heard in the background screaming hysterically, and upon her being put onto the phone, was urged by the controller to breathe deeply and attempt to compose herself. Roy Cupid was then asked by the controller to go into the lounge to ascertain if there were any signs of life to Kathy, but Cupid was heard to frantically tell him, I don't want you to go in, I've seen it. Jenny Cupid then told the controller the, the same story she had told the Cupids, that a man had forced his way into the house, had pushed her into the study along with baby Holly, and had then attacked Kathy. All I could hear was screaming and crying, she'd said. She'd repeated this story to police officer Stephen Daly, adding, She's my best friend, I love her. But when his story didn't seem to add up, the court heard, Cupid was arrested and taken to Warrington Police Station, where she was yet again to change his story during an interview with Detective Sergeant Ian Hughes, in which she'd said that when she called to see Kathy on April the 17th, They'd initially chatted quite happily. Cupid had popped out to her car for a moment, 
and when she'd returned, Kathy's whole demeanour had changed. In a tape recording of an interview with Cupid following her arrest that was played to the jury, she went on, We sat down, she just asked me outright if I'd been involved with Chris, and she said she hated me, because even if I wasn't involved with him, he liked me, and he paid me more attention than her. She grabbed my hair, and I could see she was getting really annoyed, really mad. I just told her to calm down, and I said that we'd talk about it and sort it out. As she went into the kitchen, I got my phone and my glasses and my vase, and went and headed to the front door, because she was really starting to scare me. As I got to the front door, she came at me with a small knife. I turned around and grabbed her hand. I cut my hand on the knife, and then I hit her on the head with the vase, because I was scared of what she was going to do, and then dropped the vase. She still had hold of the knife, and there was blood everywhere over my hand. It was dead slippy, and we were both struggling. We both had hold of the knife, and then it went into her stomach. She left go, so I broke the knife in half so that no more damage could be done. Then from nowhere, she pulled this really big kitchen knife out, so we started struggling again, and we ended up on the floor again. I got hold of the knife and I threw it into the lounge. She crawled after it and I tried to grab her. She picked it up again and it was so close to me. She kept on saying that she hated me. She hated me for being so thin and popular. Then I just grabbed hold of the knife and it slipped and went into her. She fell on the floor and I didn't, I just didn't know what to do. Holly was crying so I went to get Holly and tried to pacify her. I got a jumper from the kitchen put it over Kathy and asked her where the phone was. I found the handheld phone and the battery had gone on it, so it kept on cutting out, and I went and sat with her. I just didn't know what to do. Then she just, her breathing went really shallow, and she just stopped. That's it. When asked what she did next, Cupid replied, I just hugged her. This account, Mr. Carlyle told the court, was a tissue of lies. He continued to the court with the prosecution's version of events. How at about 11.30am on April the 17th of the previous year, after arranging childcare from her mother-in-law the previous day, Cupid went to a nearby Asda supermarket, continuing, She picked a normal shopping basket of fruit and vegetables, but added a multi-purpose kitchen devil knife with a black plastic handle and a four-inch serrated blade. The shopping she placed into her car, but the knife went into her handbag, and then she went home. We know this, because the Asda receipt was found later in her dustbin, and the shopping was still in her home. It is clear the defendant had bought the kitchen devil knife that morning in Asda, for the sole purpose of killing Kathy with it. She armed herself with a knife which she bought not on impulse, or in a sudden moment of anger, she bought it to kill Kathy. She also took with her another weapon, a blue bottle, heavy with sharp edges, to use as a club or cosh. The defendant had claimed the previous day that she was going to Catherine Lineker's home to extend the hand of friendship to a troubled friend. In fact, this defendant was the false friend of Catherine Lineker. She was jealous of Catherine Lineker and angry with Catherine Lineker, and that's why she went to her house that day. The visit was entirely premeditated. Cupid lied to her mother-in-law deliberately. It had become clear to Jenny Cupid that Chris Lineker was going to stay with Kathy, his wife, 
the defendant was not going to get her man and so she armed herself with a knife. The prosecution say that while at Catherine Lineker's home and in the presence of Kathy's four-month-old baby, Holly, the defendant beat her repeatedly and then stabbed her to death. The prosecution say that when the defendant did what she did, although she has a troubled personality and very well may be insecure, she knew exactly what she was doing. She could not have acted with more deliberation. The court heard that from the analysis of the crime scene and examination of the wounds inflicted upon Kathy, the attack had initially begun in the hallway, but had moved quickly into the lounge. Kathy had been stabbed in the back with such force that the four-inch blade of the kitchen devil knife had broken in two, and after she'd fallen, she had then received at least eight blows to the head from the bottle, the injured woman attempting to defend herself by using her arms to protect her head and body. Then, as Kathy lay helpless on the floor, perhaps barely conscious, perhaps by that time unable to even move due to the knife wound, Cupid had gone to a kitchen drawer and selected another knife, this time a carving knife with an 8-inch blade, which she had then maniacally, repeatedly plunged into Kathy's stomach, ultimately piercing Catherine's major arteries and her liver. The wounds caused by the carving knife had ensured Kathy's death, the court was told. Shocked detectives believed, however, that as Kathy was teetering in and out of consciousness, on the brink of death, Cupid had then picked up Kathy's baby daughter Holly and cradled the tot in her bloodstained hands. Then, with Kathy watching in utter despair, Cupid began feeding the child. As she spooned food into the baby's mouth, detectives believed that Cupid's character was such that she would simply not have been able to resist ranting to the dying woman about a torrid affair with her husband, relishing recalling every sordid detail of their kinky three-in-a-bed sex romps. And finally, cruel Cupid would have boasted to the dying woman about how she was going to start a new life in Canada with Kathy's husband and children. Now, true or not, who knows, but can you imagine how callous that would be? Cupid, the court heard, had no pang of remorse for what she'd done and did nothing whatsoever to try and save Catherine's life. Instead, She'd waited a full two hours, making some half-hearted attempt to clean up the scene and inflict several more defensive-looking wounds upon herself and Catherine before calling her in-laws Roy and Barbara Cupid to tell them Catherine was dead. Upon arrival at the Lineker's house, her mother-in-law had immediately contacted police, who upon their arrival had found Cupid, I quote, clearly distressed and covered in what was ultimately found to be mostly Catherine's blood. She told them that a skinhead had forced his way into the house and attacked Kathy, even having the gall to add, I love her, she's my best friend. In a second interview later the same day, however, Cupid had admitted buying a small kitchen knife from Asda that day and earlier putting it in her handbag. But she disputed the pathologist's report that the knife had broken due to the force she'd plunged it into Catherine Lineker's back with, much like she tried to explain away the eight savage blows to the head, saying, She was attacking me with a knife. What else was I supposed to do? All of Cathy's stab wounds, she insisted, had occurred during their struggle, with her saying, 
There was so much blood. She was covered in it. She was crying and I was crying. I didn't know what to do. I didn't hate Kathy, but I loved her as a friend. On Tuesday the 3rd of February, the sixth and final day of the trial, in the wake of the revelations heard, the witness testimony and overwhelming evidence pointing to a culpability in premeditated murder, Jennifer Cupid changed a plea and now pleaded guilty to the murder of Catherine Lineker. In a lengthy speech of mitigation, Cupid's counsel, Adrian Fulford, told the court that Cupid wished to express her greatest remorse for what had happened, before painting a picture of a troubled young woman, a hypochondriac who throughout her young life had often been hospitalised for undiagnosed illnesses. As a teenager, she'd been treated by psychiatrists, and when she was 16, she'd taken an overdose of paracetamol after her parents had divorced and her grandfather had died, events which affected her badly. She'd had her first child aged just 18, and following the birth of her second three years later, she'd developed the eating disorder bulimia, which she had been prescribed Prozac for. Mr Fulford was also somewhat critical of Cupid's husband Nick, who he claimed, I quote, was unable to provide her with the support she needed because he was preoccupied with things other than the care of his wife. However, he was downright scathing about Chris Lineker, who sat impassive at the back of the public gallery, staring down at the floor, as Mr Fulford all but laid the blame solely at his feet, saying he had to bear a heavy responsibility for his wife's death, saying, He has admitted knowing of Jennifer Cupid's problems and her instability, and knowing that she was a frightened young woman who had eating disorders and was insecure. Yet, he locked her into what was a highly dangerous relationship. Disaster, but not necessarily this disaster, must have been foreseen on his part, but he made no attempt to end it. He encouraged her in relation to pornography, to sexual aids, and to sexual practices which, given this defendant's vulnerability, you may feel was wholly inappropriate. He degraded her, he used her, and he, to a very important extent, has brought this young woman to this sad pass. In a court outfit of a grey suit and black blouse, Cupid sobbed in the dock as Mr Justice Sachs told her, I have listened to the mitigation and it isn't that great. I accept that you have problems in life, although it's extremely difficult to believe all of what you say. You are a serial liar. Your problems are no worse than those of hundreds of your fellow human beings who have not behaved as you, and only at the eleventh hour you've accepted your total responsibility for this dreadful killing. Nobody hearing the evidence in this case can fail to feel anything but utter revulsion and disgust at your lifestyle and that of others in your social circle. You must now face reality and not fanciful inventions. You took the life of a blameless and talented young woman of just 33. Her killing was totally premeditated and was perpetrated in front of her four-month-old child. You've left Catherine Lineker's two young children without a mother, as well as your own children without their mother, for at least a very, very long time indeed. Like Catherine Lineker, these four children are totally innocent, and because of what you did, their lives are irreversibly damaged. 
Goodness knows how they will react when they learn fully of what you did. Fair dues, eh? With Kathy's parents and twin sister, and her own mother, father and brother watching from the public gallery, Jennifer Cupid was then sentenced to life imprisonment, being told that she must serve a minimum tariff of 13 years before ever being considered for release. She was then taken down, still sobbing, with barely a glance towards the public gallery. Outside the court, whilst Chris Lineker refused to comment, keeping his head down as he left, Kathy's shattered father, Ken, told the press, We certainly do not feel anger and we do not feel hatred. We simply cannot relate to someone who behaves in this manner. We cannot understand how any human being could do this to another, particularly someone who only wanted to help. Following the trial, Nick Cupid gave only a short and single statement to the press in which he offered his sympathies to Catherine's parents, regretting the isolated incident in which he had betrayed his, I quote, kind, considerate and thoughtful friend Catherine. It was also reported that he had, by the time of the trial, set in motion divorce proceedings against Jennifer. Today, long since having moved on with his life, Nick Cupid remains heavily involved in the youth theatre scene, working alongside his now adult daughter Laura in a successful children's theatre company. His son Ben himself later caught the acting bug too, going on to study at a top London drama school and who today has a successful theatrical career. Cupid's erstwhile lover, Chris Lineker, meanwhile, was forced to give up his consultancy job both as a result of the publicity surrounding the events and to provide childcare for his children, and, unable to afford the upkeep of his Tannery Lane house after this, was even forced to put the property up for sale and to move back in with his parents, Roy and May. Although the Lineker's form of home did sell a short time later, the buyers of it, knowing the macabre deeds that had occurred inside, even arranged for a priest to bless it, before they would even entertain occupying it. I would have said a fair few baby wipes too, or even get Kim and Aggie round there myself, you know. And if Jennifer Cupid considered that the press furor surrounding her was over the moment she tearfully left the dock to begin her life sentence, she was to be very much mistaken. Revelations appeared in the press shortly after a conviction that, rather than remanded in secure custody pre-trial, Cupid had been held on remand at the Linden Bank Bail Hostel in Sandbach in Cheshire, and as she waited to be tried for murder, Cupid had been in and out of beds like a gardener's fork, bedding at least three different men, and had even absconded from a bail with one of them, who was said to be totally smitten with her. Oh yes. The bail hostel has separate male and female wings, and although both sections are out of bounds at night for members of the opposite sex, during the day and early evening, residents could mingle in the common rooms and dining halls, as well as wander freely around nearby streets and even visit local towns to shop. And it started at one of these times that Cupid, who enticed what would be more than a succession of lovers, sometimes more than one at a time, for passionate sex sessions in a railway siding near to the remand home. One former friend of Cupid's at the hostel had said, 
She had a way with the fellas. She likes men, and they all flock around her like flies. Jennifer wins them over with her eyes. She has the most amazing stare. She can be like a little girl one minute, all vulnerable, and then she can look like a woman with love on her mind. Tales of her doing all sorts, but especially performing impromptu oral sex on residents there, or entertaining more than one lover at a time in a nearby field were rife. Enough for one resident there at the time she was on remand, and one that she took as a lover, Andy Welsh, to describe one evening in particular. She was like a conveyor belt that night, Jenny was. Classy, eh? Mum must be so proud. Cupid also claimed to staff on more than one occasion that she'd fallen pregnant while being held on remand, but other remand prisoners there felt that it was just her way of getting more attention for no pregnancy ever materialised. Then, a week before her trial for murder, Cupid absconded from the hostel, failing to keep an appointment with her legal team. When the alarm was raised and police arrived, they found a suicide note which Cupid had written, suggesting that she was by then already dead. But, knowing her penchant for theatrics, after a search of her father's home in Warrington, where Cupid had been allowed to stay for a few days the previous Christmas, a letter was found that gave police a vital clue to her whereabouts. In the sealed letter that had been written but never been posted, Cupid poured out her love to its addressee, factory worker Tim Johnson, who she'd gotten together with at the bail hostel the previous year, when they realised they were among the few non-drug-using residents there. What a cast, eh? Johnson and Cupid must have soon began a sexual relationship, and upon his release, he was allowed to return to his home in the Staffordshire village of Nippersley, just 30 minutes away. But the affair continued, and Johnson would regularly pick Cupid up outside the bail hostel for sex, but strictly making sure she was back in her own bed by the 11pm curfew. Acting on a hunch then, Detectives had swooped on Johnson's three-bedroom semi-detached home, and just 24 hours after she disappeared, they found Cupid crying, hiding underneath his bed. She was then arrested and taken back, but this time to Risley Remand Centre near Warrington. This remains Jennifer Cupid's last taste of freedom to date for in 2008 it was reported that she'd lost the High Court appeal to reduce a minimum sentence of 13 years, after High Court Judge Mr Justice Gross ruled in July 2008 that fresh psychological and psychiatric evidence and the exceptional progress that Cupid's lawyers claimed she'd made during her imprisonment were not enough to justify lowering the minimum term she must serve, saying, On the available material, the trial judge was amply justified in saying that this was a dreadful killing of an innocent and undoubtedly talented woman and a mother of two children. For my part, while, and it is welcome, the applicant appears to have made good progress in custody, such progress is not exceptional. It follows that reliance on her progress in custody does not impact on the setting of the minimum term. In this case, the seriousness of the offence decisively outweighs any considerations relating to the applicant's progress in custody. So, with the time served on remand prior to her sentencing and dependent upon good behaviour 
and progression through the prison system continuing, Cupid would have become eligible for parole as long ago as late 2011. However, one detective who'd worked on the investigation recalled years later, It was the worst murder scene I have ever seen, but it got more sickening as we started to build the pieces together. Cupid slaughtered Kathy in a most savage attack in the most tragic circumstances. The last thing Kathy would have seen is her killer rocking and feeding her child. Cupid was a calculated murderess driven by envy, jealousy, greed, lust and sex. She thought that by butchering Kathy to death, she'd be able to sit at home with her husband. In her mind, it was very simple, but it was very sick and destroyed several families. Perhaps it's because of recollections like these that mean that more than two decades after a horrific crime, Jennifer Cupid is believed today to remain a servant prisoner, all for a crime that she committed because, whilst destined to always be an understudy on stage, she wasn't prepared to in her personal and private life. When I came across this account, I thought it was an unreal tale and one that had the enthusiast written all over it, this one was. We do like a bit of scandal here after all, and it was quite an unfamiliar one to me to boot, so win-win. Now I'm not trying to sound like Jeremy Kyle here, but the actions we've heard described are quite sordid, aren't they? And putting aside Cupid's obviously horrific actions towards Catherine Lineker, which, it crossed my mind, bordered on the psychotic, Chris Lineker, instigator in the whole affair, must have over the years tormented himself for his actions a fair share, for had he not entered into the affair, Perhaps Catherine would not have died so horribly. I say perhaps there, for if Cupid was so obsessed with Chris, the object of her affections, it's entirely possible that she may have killed her friend anyway, believing deludedly that she stood in the way of her getting her man. People have done stranger things in the name of obsession after all, haven't they? I think back to an episode I did some years ago called Fatal Obsession, for the extreme lengths an individual will go to if they get an idea in their heads. But he'd entered into the affair nonetheless, and that fact must cross his mind every time he sees his children, perhaps even his grandchildren now, all who've grown up without Catherine. And that's not me trying to be cruel there, I'm just thinking out loud. I do have the utmost sympathy for Catherine's children, and indeed Cupid's too, but it stops with them. At Cupid's trial, a doctor at Warrington Hospital who had examined her after her arrest, Dr John Hood, said in a written statement dictated to the court. She told me she was aged 24 years and was married with two children. In June 1993, soon after the birth of her youngest child, Mrs Cupid developed bulimia and was treated with Prozac by her general practitioner until November 1997. Mrs. Cupid stated that for the previous six months, she'd felt well. She was not suffering any symptoms of mental illness. Now, I tussle with this somewhat because although the murder was premeditated, and what else do you call buying a knife specifically to stab someone after having arranged your day so you're free to do it, and that shows cold-bloodedness, the crime itself is hardly the perfect one, is it? The murder seems to have been built up to and then beyond that, any efforts to stay free and get away with the crime 
well, they just don't really seem to have been apparent, do they? And the actions themselves, well, you're surely not in the best frame of mind ever to do that to bloody begin with, are you? Add to it all the clamouring for attention, Cupid's hypochondria and gallivanting as we've heard, including during her remand period, and it surprises me that she was found not to be suffering from any mental illness at all. Perhaps not enough to prevent her from standing trial, granted, but I'd say there were serious issues present there, wouldn't you? Jenny Cupid is today in her late 40s, having served a full life sentence. She still has ample opportunity to become a productive member of society, and perhaps go some way to repairing her relationship with the children she left without their mother so many years ago. This, of course, depends upon her rehabilitation, her remorse about ruining so many lives, and any issues that she may once have had being successfully addressed. But what if they haven't been? I would love as always to hear your thoughts and feedback on the tale I entitled Understudy, which hopefully by now you know where you can do. There's a thread up for the episode in the show's Facebook discussion group, or you can by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links, I don't mind at all. Hey, you can even perhaps catch me to discuss it either at this year's CrimeCon, where I'll be appearing on Podcast Row alongside other hosts, and which you can get 10% off your ticket costs by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST at checkout, or maybe, maybe just even at one of the live shows this summer that I shall be taking part in alongside Adam from UK True Crime and Mike from Murder Mile. What promises to be a ripping yarn from beginning to end, and that I'm very, very excited about, entitled How to Plan the Perfect Murder, and totally balls it up. I can't say no more, because perfectly honestly, I don't know any more than that just yet, except that it's going to be ace and loads and loads of fun to do. Look out for further details coming over the show social media links about it in the next few days. With that, like Will Smith's gloves, I'm off. It's Patreon time next, so a bit of a break from the regular show. But once that's squared away, I shall be back with some new enthusiast. All that remains for me to say then is that I thank you very much for joining me and the Peaks for the episode today, which I do hope that you found an interesting and informative tale. And with that, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks, stay safe, and goodbye for now.